0: This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists in depth about the fellow artists, writers, musicians and composers, film directors and others who have influenced them and continue to inspire them today, and the cultural epiphanies that have defined their lives and work. And in this episode, it's a brush with Thomas J. Price. For two decades, Thomas has been making work about a subject that's now become a major cultural issue across the world, how the mechanisms of power are transmitted through statuary and public sculpture, and about the representation of diverse people in society, or rather, its absence. Thomas was born in London in 1981 and studied at the Chelsea College of Art and the Royal College of Art in London. He emerged into an art scene dominated by the impact of the young British artists of the 1990s. In fact, his earliest mature work seemed to be a direct response to the kind of conceptual and video-based work that dominated that period. A performance called Licked, which was captured on film, it featured Thomas mapping the space of a gallery by licking its walls with unintended but dramatic effects, which you'll hear about later. But while he occasionally still makes video art, he soon embarked on a different approach to his work and instead focused on stop-motion animation and particularly on sculpture, albeit with a strong conceptual element. In their imagery and materials, Thomas's sculptures always ask questions about the nature and history of the medium and of the perceptions and biases of the viewer. His very early sculpture, Mixed Feelings About Bus Drivers from 2004, is a small white head realized in plaster mixed with marble powder to imbue it with a sheen of classical stone, so that it resembles the busts found in encyclopedic museums. But it's disarmingly presented on a humdrum piece of MDF and supported by a bracket of found wood. Ever since, Thomas has made work playing with issues of presentation. His series Angel Town, named after the social housing estate on which he grew up in South London, features full-length sculptures of figures in consciously modest poses. One, based on a man Thomas had seen in a betting shop, stands with one hand in his trouser pocket and a cigarette packet tucked into a pocket in his casual shirt. He and the other Angel Town figures are on plinths resembling those from municipal museums, but topped with brightly coloured platforms sprayed immaculately with car paints, a nod both to the visual language of the street, but also to modern sculpture. In his Newman series, meanwhile, Thomas created vast heads, clearly evoking ancient Egyptian sculptures and using the time-honoured lost wax casting method, but made them in aluminium, a material used in modern engineering, and set them on marble plinths as a contrast. Then, in his Untitled Icon series, again we see unavoidable references to the ancient world, with busts covered in 24-karat gold leaf, glistering like the pharaohs of ancient Egypt. Yet again, these are not deities, but apparently ordinary people. Like most of his sculptures, until recently when he began representing women more frequently, the icons depict black men. He deliberately makes their expressions ambiguous, even inscrutable. Increasingly, Thomas has been making vast, full-length figures of men and women. The largest yet is featured in the show This Autumn at Hauser & Worth in Somerset. Twelve feet high, it features a man standing with both hands in his tracksuit bottoms, wearing a hooded top and staring outwards. It's deliberately unheroic compared to the statues of generals and admirals, kings and imperialists, saints and martyrs that decorate our streets and squares. Yet it bears many of the same hallmarks as traditional statuary, a fine attention to drapery and to the objects or attributes that identify or classify the person and what they might signify, for instance. Thomas asks who gets to be represented in sculpture and what preconceptions do we hold when we see them in their pose or in the way they dress. He calls his work psychological portraits but that applies not just to those he depicts but to us. He throws the audience's own psychology back at them remarkably though despite the powerful presence of his figures they're all imagined constructed from people he sees as he navigates his native london or in images he finds in the media and it's this with which i began our conversation it seems an extraordinary feat so how does he go about constructing these fictional yet vividly realized people
1: It's quite a strange process. It's very involved and quite intense. You know, I often get asked if I, if I could do people's portraits. And I think that would be so easy to kind of copy something. But what I really am going for in the work is this very truthful, emotional or experiential kind of moments within the life of a character. And so, yeah, I can kind of composite these these characters together around what I've started to call an emotional framework. So there is there is structure to them. There is a kind of a goal that I'm trying to reach. But it's sort of defined by a feeling. And I guess the kind of a feeling that I have. And I use these kind of elements of physiognomy, you know, kind of the way that people's faces are formed and, and proportioned to, to support that feeling or to kind of reach that moment where I feel that this person presents this sort of, yeah, moment of truth. What do you think? And obviously using people that I feel familiar with, choosing people that I feel have been sort of left out of mainstream kind of conversations or history or um, certainly outside of the kind of the sculptural references that, that I use. Um, so the process is really a very internal kind of one of connecting to my own kind of feelings and thoughts um, and trying to <laughs> trying to use, yeah, physiognomy and objects to, to get there.
0: That's really fascinating. Is it Can it be as sort of random as you're looking through a newspaper one day and you see a striking image and equally you're walking down the street one day and you see a striking pose that's adopted by somebody Mm. that you pass
1: yeah i mean i i literally get inspired by a moment that that happens to me kind of you know we'll say like day to day i have walked um in camberwell where i where i live and and seeing someone drinking from a bottle but looking so intensely and it was maybe it took about five seconds and and there i was and i was just transfixed by how i'd felt about this person the kind of the feeling they had manifested for me at least and I wanted to know, like, if I put this in front of you, will you feel the same way about this person? Because there's a whole expanse inside this person's head and a whole world of experience and, and potential. And yet we limit the kind of the stories we give people, the narratives we give people so crazily, depending on what they look like. But what happens if you try and place it into a different context? What happens if you give it the kind of the a different provenance, you know, or, and the, the supporting structure of the art gallery or, you know, the, the kind of the sculptural object, the historical object? You know, I spend a lot of time staring at people and and some people just, you know, just capture me without realising it. And it's just, it can be just a moment in the eyes or the way they stand. All these things that are such important cues for for communicating personality and, and emotion.
0: And, and tell me about the eyes, because this is a really crucial factor in your work. Because there's a lot of um, breadth in terms of your materials. But one of the really consistent elements is that the eyes, in terms of the irises, they're not three-dimensional. There are holes where mm. the irises are. And that seems to me to be right across your work. Tell me about
1: that. Yeah, it's like the psychological moment, even in the animations, where, you know, got pins, I put the pins in the eyes, they're actually hollow. And it's, I've, I've always said that it's, it's, I guess it's like a way to get the viewer to kind of fill that last moment of psychological responsibility, and to create that still that space for ambiguity and for potential, for the the viewer to to really define what that yeah that last detail is, and and to keep them engaged in this process of perception and of um, construction of personality, construction of potential for the person that they are creating, you know, um, it, it kind of just emerged in the work. You know, I, I studied a lot of the the sculptures I'd see in museums. You know, I'd go around going, how does this this head meet a base. But also just as importantly, yeah, what are these kind of traditions, these these ways that other sculptors throughout history have handled the eyes and where this person is looking, you know, from from like drawing them on kind of in low relief to some quite deep relief sort of details. But for me it was just creating that hollow space was it just revealed that last little element of of where that viewer is at, you know, psychologically.
0: One of the things about your work is that is that you must to a certain extent, conceive of a, a full person, even if it's arrived at through disparate sources. But how much of a narrative do you create around them?
1: Yeah, uh, there's a physical narrative for this person you know, in terms of. So if it's just a head, you know, one of the pieces in the show is is, is a heavy set person, and I, and I imagine the whole body and how they would stand or how they would sit because it's not a head in isolation; it's connected. But I choose to focus on that as a sculptural kind of um, element. But I remember when I was studying, I did for one of the animations, try to kind of create a backstory, you know, almost like a a film writer would do, Um, be much more narrative and and literal. And I think it really revealed to me the the power for me in ambiguity and the power for me in not revealing, not trying to tie down these people to my own particular story for them. But the the joy for me or the, the, the interest for me was in what someone else sees. You know, and, and trying to connect my my judgment to someone else's judgment to talk about how we all make these judgments and talk about how we all create these stories and how they are just stories and how someone's personal truth changes depending on how they feel that day or, you know, what they particularly think about that day. Um, so for me, it was a moment where I discovered that, yeah, the, the kind of creating a, a defined narrative for me kind of removed the ambiguity and the, and. Realising that ambiguity is a really important ingredient in in what I do.
0: I wanted to ask you about this performance that you did called "Licked," which was where you licked the walls of a gallery, and it ended up with your tongue bleeding, and so you were making marks these these blood marks on the walls um, of the gallery. and And it seems to me that that was conceptually incredibly uh, rich. It it succeeded on its own terms, and it was a really strong piece. And yet, afterwards, you kind of abandoned performance (laughs) so tell me why (laughs) well I mean Licht was actually
1: originally supposed to be two-part work so it was a performance piece where I would cover this gallery space in an invisible (laughs) layer of saliva and that was about can you get a sense of presence and and communicate a a sense of a person in that room you know with that that linger it was also about this idea of belief and, and performance and and spectacle and and spreading rumors and and how we communicate to one another and then this idea of Afterwards, when the room is empty, yeah, there's kind of very quiet, subtle work, which again, was all about connectedness or being connected or trying to connect. But when I, yeah, when my stung started to bleed very early on, which I I had not thought about, I didn't, there's never a a chance I thought that was going to happen. But I remember when I first put my tongue to the wall, it just stuck. And I thought I'm going to be in trouble. (laughs) But, you know, I was young. Um, And I I managed to carry on. And, yeah, it was quite early on it started to bleed. But there was almost a moment of relief when it did because it started to leave a mark. So I could actually kind of track where I'd been. But, yeah, the work totally changed. It became this very physical, visible marker of, like, this effort to connect, this effort to to connect my inner self to the world and to feel close. Yeah, this kind of proximity to someone. So... (sighs) It it achieved all the things I wanted it to achieve and and more, you know, with the spectacle of the blood. But it did make me very conscious of, again, like where for me the kind of the importance and the power in my works were, you know, what road would I go down? Would I start creating more and more sort of extravagantly daring performance pieces? Like how much was I going to have to bleed, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and why? Like, what was that trying to do? Was that just entertaining? You know, what I was trying to do was really talk about the essence of communication, and the essence of the interpersonal connections or interactions. And I realized I was interested in people. And I was interested in people's reactions, but almost when people were talking about the work, I was more interested looking at them, trying to think through what it was they were thinking about the work or feeling about the work. And I'm doing it now as I'm trying to think about you know this answer. I'm like, my eyes are moving to certain parts of my face. and And it was those moments of real psychological honesty that fascinated me. And it kind of moved me towards this idea of, okay, animating spaces. So activating a space like the lict did. But how else can you animate space? So I went through a series of kinetic works. Um, you know, I started with performance anyway, with sound and light. But I, I moved towards the animations, the stop motion animations, because that was really like that was substance, it was touch, it was, you know, the expanding of of time through the analysis of a moment, and then the condensing of that time when you play it back, you know, real speed. And it got to the core of what I'm trying to do. You know, it got to making people aware of these processes and making people aware of the worlds they carry with them and how that affects you know, their, their external experiences.
0: I wanted to also think about, because you touched on it there, about that sort of direct connection with an audience, because you said that, in a way, the honesty that you get in terms of a response from a public work is totally different from that Mm. than you would within a relatively cosseted space (laughs) of an art gallery (laughs) to a certain degree. And so putting works out in public Mm. actually draws such a broad range and, and and as you say, a very directly honest response. Tell me about that. And and in a way, it's a test for the work, isn't it?
1: It really, Yeah, it's a very harsh test sometimes. (laughs) There is an absolute energy to work in the public realm, which... It's very hard to replicate in a gallery space. And why would you replicate it when you've got the public realm? So for me, you know, works about how we as a society construct truth, power, you know, ideas of power, ideals themselves. I think they exist so well in the public realm where they can be critiqued by the public, where they can meet the public, you know, and be activated by the public. And I love the opportunity to to place these sort of psychological propositions and these critiques of statues you know these sculptures about statues back into the public realm to be absorbed again by the public and and sort of processed through public opinion but acknowledging the individual's opinion and it really reveals the expectations that we harbor as as society through the individual comments you know what do we expect to see like why that person or who, who is that you know it always has to be a real person oh it's a sportsman it always has to be someone who's done something great and I love to expose these expectations and these traditions or tropes that we function within and that we ultimately support through our expectations and often rejections of work that doesn't conform. And I think there's been, you know, early days there was some resistance to my works because like, well, why is it of nobody? You know, well, <laughs> it is of somebody, but who is it? You know, but why is it not someone who's famous? Why is it not someone, you know, who's better than me? You know, So there's this kind of, it reveals this sort of element of internalizing of a system that essentially abuses power and it gets us to be complicit in that abuse and I think my works are really trying to for me at least trying to free us up from that free myself up from that through the process of making the works and then through the process of exhibiting them in a public space it's about trying to engage with real people in a realm in a sphere where they have the power yeah and so they can feel that they can engage because the reason I, I use figurative works is because everybody kind of has something to say about what someone looks like You know, if I lent a ladder up against the wall and put a cabbage on it, not so many people would perhaps feel able to comment on that. You know, know, I would, but (laughs) maybe not everybody. But I wanted to make works which felt accessible so that they would entice people to engage. But still on the same kind of uh, rigorous criteria of critique and concepts that runs through any work that's in a gallery or, you know, anywhere we would expect to see kind of artworks but in a space where they could be encountered by people who I wanted to speak to.
0: Let's move on to the questions we ask all our guests. So who was the first artist whose work you loved?
1: I think the first artist whose work I loved, love is a strong word, but I I think I was really drawn to the work of Giacometti particularly the sculptures and I think I think it's because I was making wire sculptures since I was a child my, I was very lucky my mother's very very creative and she would you know give me bits of wire and I'd make these kind of figures out of them when I was a, a young child and I'd always make them quite elongated And I think because I'm a bit lanky so I kind of made these people and then I suddenly saw these these objects these people that looked a bit like the things I was doing and I was a young kid you know and I, I saw these works and I was like in motion as well you know it's mainly the male figures I guess because the male figures are in motion. And I was really enticed by that. And he kind of kept me captured, you know, trying to explore his work for a long time.
0: One of the things I always love about Giacometti's work is that there's, there's that direct connection with drawings. And I wondered about is there a sort of backstory to My your work? Drawings. Well, that's it. Are yeah. there drawings? Yeah.
1: There are. There are. I, mean, I, I try and look at drawings as, as purely functional, which is, you know, um, impossible, really. There's, there's always aesthetic decisions going on. But they're a way for me to work through. Um, different ideas. And I, I I started out doing quite almost kind of like cartoonish type drawings with, with text and quite narrative and sort of uh, satirical. Uh, I think I've always had a sense of humor that runs through my work to kind of cope with everything else. But the sort of drawings I do now are quite diagrammatic, or have always been diagrammatic. There's a mixture of diagrammatic and sort of structural. But often, you know, whilst I've been doing the residency here in, um, you know, How's It Worth, I've been playing or drawing again in a way that I didn't have space for for a long time and, or time to do really, you know. And, and it's just been so freeing in terms of connecting the body to thought. And I think that's the thing that drawing for me can do. It connects the body to thought, which filters through everything else you do. And it's, I always love looking at artists' drawings or sketches or doodles because you get that insight into the way of thinking, the way of problem solving, which a finished work sometimes doesn't speak to. So I'm, I'm trying to do more drawing. It's a it's, it's discipline.
0: <laughs> you mentioned humour there, and I think that's a really important thing because, for instance, you, you've done these standing nude figures and in one of them, I noticed that he was wearing shoes. In another one, he's holding a mobile phone. And there is a sort of absurdity to them. And I wondered if if you feel that, like, there's an essential element of humour. It's not necessarily right on the surface. It's not necessarily really obvious. But it's there still, in the sense that these are deeply serious works of art, but there are elements in them which catch you off guard as a viewer.
1: Yeah, I, I think because those are the moments of, of pure honesty, you know, where perhaps if you were you know no one's going to have their photo taken like that you're going to you're going to if you'll be fully clothed or no one wants to be seen like that so it speaks to these moments of of honesty and vulnerability which are you know hard to fake and maybe I'm faking them in the sculptures but it's it's trying to speak to this sense of like of power in vulnerability this if you don't have to constantly be on guard you know like when you drop the guard it's it's quite a powerful moment and i think Maybe as I've got older, I've kind of realized that more in a, in a personal way, but I was making these, you know, quite some time ago. And I think intuitively I was trying to make works which spoke about vulnerability, but without it being pathetic. Vulnerability as a strength. and But also, you know, the objects, I call them attributes for me, are direct comments on the attributes and elements that we'd see in kind of classical sculptures, you know, Western classical sculptures, which would be used to identify who these people were. So I guess I was always talking about the cues that we use in society to form understandings of identity within others and how we can use those ourselves to try and project an understanding of identity but yeah for me it really comes down to yeah kind of a, an acceptance of vulnerability and acceptance of the absurdity of of life and and trying to embrace it as opposed to um be bruised by it you know
0: absolutely um which historical artists do you return to the most now
1: Maybe thematically, someone like Phidias, who was an you know, ancient Greek sculptor with quite epic proportions, you know, with the Parthenon and things like that. When I was at school, I studied classics, and it really had a massive impact on me. You know, I, I, I got a scholarship to um, a private school, uh, which is something I never thought I would do, but it gave me uh, an insight into a world that, you know, exists um, particularly within structures of power in the, in the UK. But this whole idea about the ambition of these works but also the humanity of them you know the intense humanity of these works but um I think you know obviously again around the figurative because as I look at and try and critique figurative works you know someone like Rodin you know and I, I, I did some of the, the commentary for the, the Tate show you know, Rodin recently which was quite a revelation you know to really get a moment to kind of think through a lot of his works you know the Burgers of Calais and all this kind of thing well, I'm trying to think someone else like that like, like painter you know Giorgio Morandi
0: Oh, how interesting.
1: Yeah. Nobody ever thinks, like, why would you like... It's because it, it's, the, it's the kind of intensity of inquiry and almost that repetition, but the subtleties in it and how these shifts bring such different meanings to his paintings. And I've just been absolutely, since I was a child, been totally kind of enamoured with those works. It's quite a weird one, but yeah. you know that's really
0: fascinating. Because, and one of the things about Mirandi that I love is that sort of sense of a kind of you talked about the vulnerability of the people that you're depicting, yeah. but there's an there's a sort of rigor and sort of solidity of those works. But yeah. there's a there's an incredible emotional vulnerability about them, right?
1: Yeah, the way that palette just shimmers. You know, the tonality of it all—it's just so well handled and considered, and it's just masterfully kind of rendered in that sort of someone that understands the subject and has a love for that subject. And I think, you know, running through my works is a love for the subject and the people that I'm trying to create. It's, you know, all the work I put in, all, you know, even when I was licking a room, it's like all that effort is about, because I care, you know, <laughs> like, it sounds ridiculous, but because I, I, I want to connect and I want people to feel like they can connect. And I, and I think, yeah, Mirandi has that in his paintings.
0: That's fascinating. Let's return to classical sculptures because I'm really interested in the way that you respond to them. So if you think about the 18th century and the way that classical statuary was used then, they adopted the poses and there was a kind of heroic power to the way that the 18th century translated the classical world for its contemporary audience. I'm really interested in what you're translating, if you like, from the classical world and to what extent it's a subversion or to what extent it's homage. You know, tell, tell me about that.
1: Yeah, I think yeah, my work responds to the way that neoclassicism sort of celebrates the heroic and the way in which, you know, people, generals and all these kind of individuals who are presented in these most glamorous ways of celebratory ways um, who've actually done really terrible things are portrayed. And I I think, you know, my work places kind of the figures that I want to put focus on into that context, into contrast with those people. You know, these are people who are being celebrated for having done you know quashed a rebellion or or triumphed in a particular continent and and are being celebrated and yet you know here's a figure wearing a hooded top who's walking home and is shot or just standing in the street with his hands in his pockets and is thought of as you know suspicious and i think there is there is a contrast there and so I, i do utilize the sort of the way in which you know these ideals have been sort of incorporated into society through the art objects Uh, through the statues in our cities you know like who knows their names but we all know the sort of the postures and I think you know the the way that my works refuse to hold the sort of same bombastic posturing um, as as these traditional statues is very conscious and it's it's about a statement of intent and it's about a statement of what I think is important and I think we do need to reconsider the way that that we are you know, allowing these, these negative attitudes to affect people's lives. And the amount of attention or thoughts and, and chances we give to one person and the absolute lack of empathy and attention we give to someone else. And, and I think, yeah, through the sculptures, particularly the, you know, the figurative works, which do resonate against the traditions of, of statues, that's where you know, I'm trying to push at these, these issues. And, and by utilizing these very understood visual languages in a way that says, I, I'm not going to try and be as good as you. I'm not going to try and be, okay, I now can also be in the same guise as a 17th century French courtesan. You know, I, I don't want that. You know, my, my figures are, are, they're not shoulders back trying to get, you know, the approval or trying to show how much better they are than you. They are, they are separate to that system. They're saying, we don't want to be part of that system they're trying to be these moments of truth and uh, lack of um, need to project a particular image because that's that's the ideal, right? That that for me would be like the most tranquil place to be. That's where I'd love to be. If I could walk down the street without having to worry about how I was coming across to someone who's approaching me, that's a wonderful space to be in. And sometimes it does happen, you know? and And it feels great. But then there's the anxiety that you have to carry around with you about checking yourself and making sure. And I think, you know, Sculpting these moments of vulnerability or truth, for me, is is this this kind of celebration of that kind of freedom and a reaffirmation of my need for that and my wish that other people feel this and the people I know who don't feel that I say we we can get this yeah but you know but how are we going to get there because we need everyone to be involved
0: and has it felt odd to see the territory of your work. Become an enormous political hot potato in the sense that statues are now the subject of debate in societies and and directives by government across the world.
1: You know, it can only be a positive thing. It can only be a positive thing. I'm I'm really happy that suddenly, oh right, yeah, statues—they have importance. You know, they have significance. They they communicate things to us unconsciously. They are affirmations of intent and and belief. And they affect societies as well as individuals. You know, people have been saying this for a long time. I've been making work about this for a long time. Um, and nobody wanted to know at the beginning. If I'm honest, nobody wanted to know about that. They go, okay, who is this person? Oh, it's not someone real. Okay, move on. Um, and I was trying to say, no, look, look, but look at the reference points. Look at you know, the potential in terms of um, the different system that we can employ, the different values we can have if we don't have to just have famous, powerful, triumphant conquerors. You know, what about if we celebrate the humanistic qualities that can connect us all, you know, that resonate within us that we really do want. So that, that itself has been an amazing kind of th- thing to witness. And, you know, on a personal level, it's, it's quite funny that, you know, suddenly everybody's telling me about statues and, and, and how important the figure is. You know? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah that's a, I'll, I'll, I'll read up on that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's so, you know, ultimately, it can only be a good thing, I'm happy and, and I'm certainly happy that you know, my work is now reaching an audience that it didn't before in a way, you know, and an audience who's now open to it and so hopefully you know, the changes that can happen and the conversations that can happen will be richer and, and longer lasting, so you know, I'm really excited about where we're going I just you know, want to make sure that we keep moving keep moving in that direction and um, that it's not a blip
0: This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to more than 40 cultural institutions through a single download, with new partners being added every month. There's a huge variety of institutions on the app, each with an individual guide. For instance, there are guides to three institutions who show outdoor sculpture. There's the Noguchi Museum, with its garden designed by Osama Noguchi so that his works could be seen amid plants and beneath the open sky. And then sculpture parks on both sides of the Atlantic, the Socrates Sculpture Park, close to the Noguchi Museum in Queens in New York and the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, where Thomas had a solo show in 2014 alongside the dozens of sculptures shown amid beautiful landscapes near Leeds in the UK. In Bloomberg Connects, guys, you can discover unique audio content, hear from artists and curators in exclusive videos, explore exhibitions, past and present, and plan your visit in advance. To explore guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. You can find the app at BloombergConnects.org and it's also available to download from the App Store and Google Play. Let's move on to museums now. Which museum or gallery do you visit the most?
1: Ooh, I was quite lucky as a as a child that my mother would take me and my brothers to lots of different museums because they were free and we didn't have a big house, so like she tries to get us out of the house and take us to you know museums. Um, you know, I've, I've explored uh, the British Museum a lot, but um, I think the British Museum is a place that has a lot of issues going on with it. And um, you know, the more I kind of walk around there, the kind of the more I see. And I think you know, I used to love going through into the like the Africa rooms but then I realized that why are they in the basement and why are they so dark and why are they sort of like this sort of strangely, um, not spiritual, but kind of this strangely dark sort of atmospheric space where the the Western and even the Viking kind of work is up, up in the top galleries and really light and bright and, and looks beautiful. But I do love the space and the kind of exploring the world in one, you know, one building is, is quite an amazing kind of experience and I feel really privileged for that. But I think the V&A was another place, you know. But I think maybe it's the spaces I engage with. This idea of being able to explore and lose yourself, you know, even like the, the National Theatre in the South Bank. You know, I spent a lot of time, before the Millennium Bridge was built, walking around there with my family on very wet days, running around the concrete buildings, you know, getting lost in the Festival Hall. But um, obviously, you know, the, the Tate in its many guises has always been a place that I've been lucky enough to go to. And I used to pop in every now and again to say hi to some particular works. You know, I'd, I'd go and literally, because it's free, which is, you know, such a blessing in this country. Mm. Um you can pop in, you know, and and just look at some works and take some time to kind of take a take a breath and you know <laughs> experience something quite beautiful. I'm
0: imagining sculpture, but of of course it may not have been sculpture. (laughs) Just because you're a sculptor doesn't mean you only look at sculpture.
1: I've always been fascinated with painting. Um, I've actually started painting, now I've had some space. um, And I've always been fascinated with the the different way of seeing and the way of processing information, the way of trying to translate something and and presenting it. And that way, I definitely do it like a sculptor. You know, I definitely think in terms of space and and tangibility. But so my concerns are that of a sculptor, but I absolutely love painting. And and I think some of my favourite works of paintings um but yeah I mean I would I would walk in to see uh Giacometti's pieces just because of the way that you can get a sense of the way they play with space and perspective that you can't get from a book
0: which culture experience changed the way you see the world
1: I mean go back to another kind of show that I went to I saw Sonic Boom at the Hayward Gallery in 2000 before I started art school i I was leaving sixth form and I decided I was going to try and do um, a foundation instead of joining the Royal Marines, believe it or not. <laughs> and, um, Good decision. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And um, it blew my mind. It it showed me that arts can be a thought and be a, an experience and sound can exist as a physical thing. And once you start reinterpreting what you thought you knew, that kind of opens the gates to anything can be kind of reconsidered. And it brought so many different things into play. It brought... The space interplay as a a material. Resonance interplay as a material. And I think even the sculptures I do play with space. I've always talked about animating spaces. You know, the push and pull effect of scale. um, Animations that actually move but are flat. You know, but have this kind of sense of tangibility because their surfaces change where my hands have touched them. Photographs that look at the hands. But this, this show about sound made me think about touch and made me think about space and ultimately about how
0: we connect. That's wonderful. And, and obviously, you're a sculptor, but it's really crucial how you install your works. You know, there are forms of installation and sort of immersion that exist around your sculptures, aren't there?
1: Yeah, I think the modes of display, as I kind of tend to call it, incredibly important because it's, it's part of the critique of sculpture. You know, sculpture for me isn't just about the object. It's about how an object is placed. Why a plinth? You know, <laughs> that old, the old kind of question about the plinths. I love plinths because they're so fun to play with and in terms of, you know, getting people riled up about how we use them. You know, my, my works in public don't go on plimps because I don't want to be part of that same system that uses plimps to say we're better than you. You know, so, but inside I like the plimp because it really does change about how someone approaches a work. Because I guess I've come from, this from a conceptual perspective. You know, it's not just like I love being there with some clay and you know, <laughs> making a sculpture because that's what we do. It's, it's really about why do people make sculptures? Why do people respond to these things in space? How do we relate to them bodily and mentally? and and so yeah the, the the where and the how is incredibly important to that understanding so the the placement the the height the the material of what they're standing on is just as important to me as the object and i like the way that a reconfiguration of that can totally change the experience so you know one of the larger works for example indoors is different to how it is outdoors and for me to have that kind of ability or that expansiveness within using the same work but in a different place is, is really valuable and it's again part of the concept you know I talked about using space well, how do we use it and, and what effect does it have on us it's a game isn't it it's like you're playing this, this kind of playful nature of, of experimentation I think it should be there a work and, and it, certainly if you want to enjoy it and I, and I absolutely love these sort of these experiments in material and space and in display and, and seeing what people do with it <music>
0: Let's talk about literature now. Which writer or poet do you turn to the most?
1: I think I'm pretty terrible on literature, to be honest. I'm really, really dyslexic, so I end up listening to a lot of books now, which I find quite good, because I can do it in the studio sometimes as well. But I was always so slow at reading, it became almost a trial. But I remember actually reading Things Fall Apart at school. And it's not like a, a text I go back to to, to think about art, and, but it, it is a book that made me feel a particular way or realise something when I was at school, when I was studying it put these two different kind of cultures in context and made me realise that my reception to that book was very different to some people in the class and and my kind of, almost the characters I was rooting for might have been different, you know. But it was also, I, I remember like doing a drawing as instead of an essay in, in my book because I couldn't handle the essay. But um, I don't know. I think, yeah, I've, I've never really used writings as a starting point for anything. And, I, and I, I did listen to some amazing stuff where people were talking exactly that, about how writing would be the starting point for work and I've never really done that I've never really in- illustrated ideas in that that way I've certainly conversations so I think it's more like people are the, the things I keep returning to and conversations I think I return to I think that's why lockdown was so tough in a way that those moments of opportunity those moments of you know, where you just have that a running conversation with someone which would like just put that idea in your mind or spark something were sort of taken away you know, you can have a conversation on the phone, okay, but it's that interpersonal, you know, in, the, in the same space kind of thing that has that energy and that, all those things that, you know, in my work, for example, you know, all those things that communicated non-verbally um, were there. So th- there were certainly ideas I returned to, but I've, yeah, I'm not someone that's been led by, by texts, I have to say. Maybe that can change.
0: Uh, which music or other audio do you listen to as you're working?
1: So I once had um, a tutor way back in the day say that one of my animations were operatic, I'm not sure if that was supposed to be an insult but i loved it because i love opera i remember the first time i f- i listened to opera it was um i found a cd in a car boot sale and i listened to this opera. i had no idea what they were saying it was italian it was the force of destiny um but the the the, the emotion in it carried me away in the journey and the sort of the, the the narrative structure of the sounds and the the composition this idea of composition you know and, and how balance can be achieved over a span of time and the kind of different structures sort of really blew my mind as a kid and, and opened me up to this, this world of experience. It, it sounds weird, you know, like from a small little council house in, you know, in Brixton and, and I was listening to these operas about you know, Italian countryside and, and, and it just made me think about, it let me journey in my mind and then that kind of moved me towards, well, I've always listened to blues and, and jazz and um, Abdullah Ibrahim, mm. his Senzo album. It's one I've talked about before because, but I just find it so transformative. Like I, can't, I, I listen to that and it's just, it's incredible. I can't listen to it in the studio really though. Right. It's, I find, I actually have a lot of silence in the studio um, because I get into the music so much that I just want to listen to the music and process the music. Yeah. But um, sometimes I do if I'm doing something repetitive, you know, I can listen to music. Sometimes you have to just to get through the physicality of some of the stuff I do. But, um, you know, I listen to all sorts, really, but nothing that really is going to take me away from it. There's a lot of hip hop that goes on So if I really need to kind of get myself in the mood for like getting some serious work done, you know, like quantity wise.
0: Oh, that's really interesting because, of course, there are lots of different modes of your work, aren't there? Different phases. You know, you've increasingly been using digital processes. So tell us about that, you know, the different modes and the way that, the way that there are different sort of, uh, sort of passages within mm. the, the gestation of a work.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really nice, actually, to have these these different processes and elements that kind of keep it fresh and keep it interesting and keep me engaged. You know, <laughs> I have sanded for days, you know, at an end and it, it's mind numbing. But yeah, but the digital process, it really came from, You know, I started making work and you know, I was using wet clay and then oil-based clay. And even that was a big change for me, using a clay which isn't dry, which allowed me to do more detail, which allowed me to, to keep a work out overnight and, and consider it and get closer and handle it in ways that you can't necessarily do wet clay. So that changed the kind of form of the works to these smaller, much more detailed pieces. And then when I started to look at digital clay, you know, I call it digital clay, it, it allowed me to... Rotate an object in space in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do with a physical object, but it also allowed me to do kind of comparisons in a way. Instead of this linear way of working, this way of you know make a change, follow that change, make another change, follow that change, I was able to to kind of branch out a sculpture into several different versions, look at them simultaneously, and really start to analyze and and look at this idea of nuance. You know, I've talked about nuance before in the work, but to really do comparative nuance. And that sort of led me to this ability, really, that I have now, which is to kind of create a character, which kind of moves through the work, but in different guises or in slightly different poses, to show just how a subtle shift in nuance can really throw, you know, in a, a huge impact in terms of the understanding of the work. And, and like I was saying, you know, like how these subtle gestures can have huge impacts for our experiences of the world, depending on how people view them. So, you know, hands in the pockets, like all in, you know, 12 foot piece all in with Guy standing with his hands in his pockets. Then you have got uh, within the folds, which is the same character, pretty much the same stance. You know, slight change in the head shift, but his hands are out of his pockets, and and just it's kind of using that as a conceptual, you know, as a strategy to to make us aware of the the ways that we see the world and the way that we kind of view people.
0: Is there a discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual?
1: In all honesty, I, I kind of think of this, this thing that people call creativity. I think of it as a discipline and something that needs to be exercised and, and kept sharp. And it, for me, you know, and it's, I think it's always personal, it's, it's about being able to hold something quite gently in your mind and let it form. And, and there's those subtle kind of touches that manipulate it and, and utilize it, you know, and turn it into something else that manifests it physically through whatever artwork you make so for me it's a type of thought which some people call creativity um but for me it's like it's practiced um almost meditation resulting in something else you know it doesn't have to be physical I'm just saying it doesn't have to be physical but it's it's yeah like gently holding that thought and letting it sort of and learning to manipulate it kind of consciously
0: if you could live with one work of art what would it be
1: that is such a hard question. Um, maybe I could just try and move into a museum and live there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, I, I used to I say I, I'd go to the Tate and look at, like, you know, The Head of Diego by Giacometti. Oh, I'm a big fan of, like, the Ife, you know, brass heads, though. Um, I guess they're quite figurative at the moment. Or something by Kerry James Marshall. I mean, like, almost anything by Kerry James Marshall, to be honest. Like, I, there's an artist of such rigor and just absolute beauty in the work and consistently... Just, I think, a fantastic artist. I was lucky enough to meet him once, and he's just a lovely guy. And just, yeah, one of those painters. They're so rich, and you could just keep looking and looking and looking and looking and always find something new. I think um, maybe something like that would be good.
0: That sounds like a good choice to me. And lastly, what's art for?
1: That's a good question. I think it's art for asking questions like that. I think it's really, I used it as a way to kind of filter my life through this process of engagement to try and find some sort of understanding. And, and maybe to distract myself from everything else that's going on I think art is for making space for ideas making space for acceptance of, of who we are
0: Thomas, thank you so much for joining us thank you very much for having me Thomas J. Price, Thoughts Unseen, is at Hauser & Worth in Somerset, UK until the 3rd of January 2022. His sculpture, The Distance Within, is now on view in Marcus Garvey Park in New York as part of the Studio Museum in Harlem's collaborative series, In Harlem. That's until the 1st of October 2022. He's just installed another large-scale sculpture, reaching out at the Donham Estate, a winery in Sonoma, California, and an addition of that work is already in place on The Line, the walking route of public sculpture in London. Another version of it is in the Hauser & Worth Somerset show. Lastly, Thomas's work for the Windrush Commission honouring the Windrush generation of African Caribbean people in the London Borough of Hackney will be unveiled next year. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcasts, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Judy Mahauska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentel, Danielle Hathaway and Kabir Jallo. Huge thanks to Thomas J. Price. We'll be back soon with more episodes. See you then. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.